for today is Easter Sunday, that time of the year that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus. We actually celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. That's why we meet on the first day of the week instead of the last day. But especially at this time of year, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And you've already heard Matthew's account of the resurrection and our call to worship from Matthew 28. In just a moment, I'm going to read Luke's account of the resurrection from Luke chapter 24. And as we look at this account, I want us to consider just a couple of questions together as we look at this account of the resurrection. And the questions I want us to think about are these. Number one, do you believe Jesus physically rose from the dead? Maybe you're here today and you already believe that. And my prayer for you this week has been this, that as we look at this text together, that you would be convinced of the certainty of the things that you have been taught, that you would walk away with a little more certainty of the things that you already believe. That's one of the reasons Luke wrote this. But you may be here today and you're skeptical about a physical resurrection. And I want you to know I am glad that you are here Redeemer Church is a place that we want you to be able to get honest answers to honest questions. So you are welcome to this place. This church is full of people who at one time were skeptical of these things just as you are. So I think you will find the people here patient and willing to walk with you through these questions that you may have. So I'm so glad that you are here. There may be another group of folks that you would say, yeah, I believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. But I don't come to church that much. I don't really come sporadic. And the reason why is I just really don't see what difference it makes in my daily life. What difference does that make? What happened 2,000 years ago? What kind of difference would that have in our life today? I'm going to talk about that question as well. As we look at this text here in Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and I'll pray for us, and we'll dig in and think about those questions in a few more. Hear now God's word from Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. As we wonder about what happened, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray for my friends that are gathered here today. For those who already believe, I pray that you would give them more certainty of the things that they have been taught. Father, for those who are skeptical, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts, drawing them to yourself. Give them a, a thirst to know more. Give them a curiosity. I pray that you would 
warm their hearts so that you would draw them to yourself even this day. And Father, for those who have heard this story many times before, but doubt that it really makes a difference in the way that we live every day, I pray that you would show us the difference that the resurrection can make in our lives every day. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do all these things, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. First question we want to think about today is this. Do you believe Jesus physically rose from the dead? The interesting thing is that if you read here, these first witnesses at first did not believe Jesus had physically risen from the dead. Do you see that? In verse 1, the women come to the tomb, and they come bringing spices because they're expecting to find a corpse. They're expecting to find a dead body that they're going to put this perfume and these spices on. And at least the women went to the tomb. I mean, the disciples didn't even go, right? And you have to remember in the context on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus three times, with all these folks who were following, three times he had been very specific. And Jesus had said to him, look, we are going to Jerusalem. When we get there, so he's told them the place, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. So he said, look, when he arrested by Jews, then handed over to the Romans. He was very stupid. He said, they're going to arrest me. They will mock me. They will insult me. They will spit on me. They will flog me. Then the Son of Man will be killed. All that has already happened. And he had told them it was going to happen three times. They got to Jerusalem. All those things happened. And then he said, and on the third day, I will rise from the dead. Now it's the third day. Now, I want to believe that if I had been walking with Jesus to Jerusalem and I would heard him say all that, and I'd seen all the wonderful things that he had done, calming storms and walking on water and raising other people. I think, I would want to think that I would have at least gone and been sitting outside the tomb on the third day. You know, let's just see what happens, right? These guys are not even there. Then the women come back and tell him, hey, listen, we got to the tomb. The stones roll away. There's no body there. This angel shows up. Tells us he's not here, he's risen from the dead, just like he told you he was going to do. And one of the disciples goes to the tomb. None of them believed the women. That's crazy. Isn't that interesting? If you were writing an account to convince people of Christianity, is this the story you would tell? Not me. The only reason you tell us is because this is what happened. It's the only explanation. Then Peter goes to the tomb. He sees the stones roll away. The tomb is empty. The linens are lying there. Now listen, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to move a dead body, I'm not going to unwrap it first. I'm going to leave that thing wrapped up, right? The linens are there on the ground, and he walks away wondering what had happened. It's almost comical. They saw all this evidence, yet they did not believe. I wonder. Do we do the same thing? Do we see great evidence of the goodness and greatness of God all around us every day as he keeps his promises, as he's faithful to do the very things that he said he would do, and yet we miss it? We don't believe. Maybe you're here today and you think, yeah, I believe Jesus really lived. I've seen the documentaries on the History Channel. Most scholars, even if they don't agree with the physical resurrection, they believe Jesus was a real historical person. He lived on the earth. 
There are extra biblical accounts. I think of Josephus, the historian that's writing at about this time, who confirms that. There are other extra biblical accounts of Jesus. Most scholars believe, yes, he really lived. And you may be thinking, yeah, I admire his teachings. I try to follow him. I think he's a good man. I thought he was a good teacher. But physically rising from the dead, it's not reproducible in a laboratory. That doesn't really happen, right? Maybe resuscitation. I've heard about people who stop breathing, their hearts stop beating for a while, and then they sort of come back to us. But, but not after three days. Not after being nailed to a cross and having that kind of blood was being stabbed with a spear, being put in a tomb for three days. It's just outlandish. And so a lot of people look at this account, and they say maybe the point is spiritual. Maybe God's just telling us that he takes even the worst situations and then does great things with them. Well, listen, I want you to understand, you can make that argument if you want to. But you need to understand that is not what Luke is claiming right here. That is not what he is teaching. Luke is arguing for a physical resurrection. And you see it later in this chapter when Jesus comes and appears to the disciples in the upper room in verse 37. Look what happens. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost, right? Because they saw it dead. And if we're seeing a man, it must be a spirit. It must be a ghost. It must be a spiritual thing. Look what Jesus says in verse 38. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet and as I myself touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They're literally looking at the resurrected Christ standing in front of them, giving them an opportunity to touch the wounds in his hand and his feet. What do they do? Look. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, and he goes on. They still don't believe. He's standing in front of them saying, touch me. Look, I have flesh and bones. A, a ghost doesn't have that because this is a physical resurrection. And while they're standing there, Jesus says to them, do you have anything to eat? Now, I would imagine that he hasn't had anything to eat for three days, and so, yeah, he probably is hungry. But note that that is a physical appetite. Ghosts don't show up and say, do you have anything to eat? And then this very moving passage of the Scripture, it says, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. The significance of that is he's doing physical stuff. There is physical digestion going on here because Luke is making the case that this is a physical resurrection from the dead. Now, Luke is very careful in what he writes. I want you to see that from the beginning of his gospel of how he works up to this and how he arrived at this at the end of his gospel. And if you read the first few uses of verses of, of Luke, this is what he says there. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now notice a few things about that. First, Luke is writing this down for someone called Theophilus. 
He has a title, most excellent. He's probably a government official or has some official capacity. And so Luke is writing to him. And he says, look, other people have written this down before. Many have undertaken to do this, right? And Theophilus could go and check that out. And certainly by this time, you know, Matthew is writing, Mark has written an account, John writes, the Apostle Paul has written extensively letters to churches that are circulated in the Mediterranean about the resurrection of Christ. Many have undertaken to write an account of these things, and Theophilus could check those things out. And Luke says, look, there were eyewitnesses. This is what they have handed down from the beginning. And I myself carefully investigated these things. Listen, you need to know that Luke was an incredible historian. If you read the Gospel of Luke and then his sequel, The Acts of the Apostles, he lists literally hundreds of names and titles in geographical places. And each one of them, he gets the currency that they use there correct. He gets the titles that they use for their ruling officials correct. And, and scholars say the only way he would be able to do that is if this person had actually traveled amongst the ancient world to do that. There's no internet to consult. There's no world book encyclopedia, right? He had to have actually been there. So he carefully investigated these things. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think Theophilus just believed all this stuff because Luke wrote it down and sent it to him? <laughs> no, of course not, right? We don't believe everything that we read. Theophilus is a government official. He's an educated man. He's a man of means with a regular income from the government. He has connections and a network. He can check these things out, right? He can look around. You know, Jesus' public ministry was not over that big of an area. It's an area from about here to Birmingham is where his earthly ministry was. So this is not a big area. It hasn't been that long. Luke is writing about 25 or 30 years after the events that took place. So we're talking about something for us that happened somewhere between 1991 and 96. In fact, let's just do a thought experiment together, Okay. Think of some of your favorite things from the 90s, all right? What are some of your favorite things from the 90s? If you don't remember that time, 1991, we're talking about the Gulf War. 1992, Bill Clinton's elected president as president throughout the rest of the 90s. If you're talking about movies, the big one for the 90s is Titanic. Then you got Jurassic Park, Aladdin, uh, The Lion King, Forrest Gump. All these things are movies in the 90s. If you're a sports fan, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls win six NBA championships during the decade of the 1990s. If you're a music person, uh, remember grunge comes from the northwestern United States, and so you've got Kurt Cobain, those kinds of guys on the music scene. If you watch television, we began the 90s watching Seinfeld, and we ended the 90s watching Friends. They're the 90s. Now, I know some of you, we're born after the 90s. You don't have to rub it in, okay? But you're familiar with the time. And my point is, there are people who are still around who live in the 1990s, right? So imagine your favorite thing from the 90s. Imagine that today, somebody comes out with a book or some kind of documentary, and they begin to make these outrageous claims about your favorite thing from the 90s. They make outrageous claims about 
what happened on the set of Forrest Gump. Or they make some outrageous claims about the Chicago Bulls and their championship uh, seasons. Or they make some outrageous claims about some of the things that happened there in the early 1990s. What would happen? Well, the media would go, and if they had named names like Luke does right here and said all these people saw it, all these people heard about it, then they would go and interview those people, right? And what would happen if those folks said, I don't know what he's talking about. I was there the whole time during the filming of Forrest Gump, and none of that stuff happened. They said, look, I was a trainer for the Chicago Bulls. I was writing none of that stuff happened. What would happen to that book or that documentary? It would fade away. It'd be a one-day story that, hey, there's a big hoax that some nutcase who lives in his mom's basement made these claims about the Friends television show from the 90s, but none of it's true. Nobody remembers it. He had his 10 minutes in the spotlight, and he would go away. Nobody would think about it anymore. Do you realize that what you hold in your hand when you read the book of Luke is 2,000 years old? You think people would have held on to that and preserved it if none of these things were true? If none of these eyewitnesses confirmed seeing these things? Look at how many people he lists. Luke named names. You see it there in verse 10. He says, these women who went to the tomb, here's who they were, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others, and they went and told this stuff to the apostles. He lists all 12 apostles in chapter 6 of his gospel. Joanna, who's mentioned right here, if you look in Luke 8 to verse 3, you see that she herself was the wife of a government official, the head of Herod's household. So Theophilus may have known her or known people who knew her. He can check these things out. He's a government official himself. It goes on later in the chapter, in verse 18, there's another disciple of a follower of Jesus named Cleopas. Right before this account, he says there's a man named Joseph who's a member of the council. He's from Arimathea. He's the one that went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body and then put it in a tomb that had never been used before. Luke is very specific, and he names names. And you'd be able to check this out. And Theophilus was in a position that he could do that. Historical fact. Thousands of people came to believe what Luke wrote. You may not believe it, but listen. It's a historical fact that thousands of people changed their religion. Maybe they were Jewish and they became Christian and said, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe they were polytheistic and they became monotheistic and said, there's one God and I'm going to follow him. There were thousands of people who became Christians based on this. So there must have been tremendous evidence for people to believe. In fact, there were thousands of people who were willing to die because they believed these things were true. There must have been tremendous evidence for the things that Luke writes here. Now you may say, so what? Well, let me make a couple of applications. First, if you're here today and you believe these things, listen, I want you to have what Luke wanted you to have, right? A little more certainty in the things you've been taught. And that means if you're a believer, listen, that means we can engage in dialogue with people, all right? Let's not be afraid of people who are hostile to the faith. In fact, we need to be having dialogue in a warm, winsome, kind way. But we don't need to be afraid of intellectual scrutiny. Every generation has their critique of the Bible and of the gospel. And what's really funny is 
We believe the same thing for 2,000 years, and the critique keeps changing. The people in this generation laugh at the critique that there was of Christianity 50 years ago. They don't believe that either. And I'd be willing to bet if the Lord tears. 50 years from now, the, the people who are critiquing the Bible, they'll be laughing at the folks who are critiquing us. And really, that was their critique. That's ridiculous. Here's what's wrong with it. So let's have a little confidence, a little certainty. Let's not be afraid. Let's not be so defensive, okay? Christianity was here before you got here. It's going to be here after you're gone. Let's just be warm and winsome and kind and be willing to engage the culture and talk to people who believe something different than what we believe. believe. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't believe these things. You're skeptical, right? And I, I just want you to see that Christianity is not something that's just a blind leap of faith. There's a lot of evidence on which this is based. This is a rational step to take in order to embrace Christianity. There was a tremendous amount of evidence for it. Now, most people I talk to, what they say is, yeah, well, how about showing me some? I want more evidence. And they keep asking for more evidence. And you're going to say, yeah, if I saw angels, and if they told me that he had risen from the dead, and I saw the stone rolled away, listen, I want to think that I would have believed that too. But look at these people. They have the resurrected Christ right in front of them, holding out his nail-scarred hand, and they don't believe. So don't be fooled into thinking that all you need is more evidence, and then you would believe. In fact, from this text, there's so many people who see so much evidence they don't believe. I believe the text is taking us this direction. I believe what it's saying is that we cannot produce true, soul-saving, God-connecting faith. That's not something we can do. Surely that's the conclusion from all these people who miss it here in the text. And the Bible teaches that explicitly in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul writes that church in Ephesus, and he says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. So we're talking about our faith. And then he says, And this is not of yourselves, right? This faith is not something that you've worked up. It is a gift of God, not by words. It's not something you've worked up so that no one can boast. Listen, faith is not something you work up in yourself. We often think our faith is our gift to God. But faith is not our gift that we produce and give to God. Faith is a gift from God to us. <laughs> now, what do you do with that? That's crazy, isn't it? Maybe you're here and you're thinking, usually on Easter I go and I hear this preacher preach and he tells me I have to believe. And this clown standing up telling me I can't believe. What do you do with that? Yeah, that's weird. I'll tell you what to do with it. If you are curious, but you're skeptical, if you're saying, yeah, I'd like to have faith. I don't have a problem with faith. This guy's making some pretty good points. I'm interested. If you are interested, keep pursuing God. Keep reading about these things. Keep asking people about these things. Because your interest in these things means that God is working in your heart. Jesus had several brothers on the earth. He had one named James. And James, growing up, Jesus was his older brother. That must have been a hard life. Who would want to have Jesus as your older brother? That guy never does anything wrong, right? And growing up, James, who grew up in this Jewish family, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
But when he got older, he did come to faith and he did become a Christian. He was one of the leaders in the early church. And the Apostle James writes, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's what I would call you to do. Come near to God and he will come near to you. A lot of times we say, listen, I'll work on this later. I'll read about that later. I'll get serious about church later. I, I can look at this stuff later. I've got time. You hear the assumption there? The assumption is faith is something we can turn on and turn off. Listen, I appeal to you. Do not wait. Keep pursuing God. In Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, three times the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 verses 7 and 8. Where it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I call you, keep moving toward God, and he will come near to you. Faith is a gift from God, but don't lose heart. It's a gift he loves to give. When you're here and you believe Jesus rose from the dead, this is something you already believe. Then I want to ask you this question. Because if you're wondering, what difference does this make every day in my life? Here's the difference that it makes. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe you can have a real relationship with the risen Christ? You see, as Christians, we often send the message that all Christianity is about is believing all the right things. And there are some things you need to believe to be a Christian. And by the way, we get all mixed up on what exactly those things are, right? You don't have to vote for a certain political party to be a Christian. Uh-oh. Right? Yeah, you with me? You don't have to educate your kids a certain way in order to be a Christian. Right? You don't have to even like Chick-fil-A in order to be a Christian. Right? There are some things that we can hold a little more loosely. And we get mixed up about what it is that we have to have and what we have to believe. But just know for now that Christianity is about much more than just what we believe. Because there are many people who profess to be Christians that I meet. And those folks have no transformation in their life. There's no way they're really different in the world around them. And these folks profess to believe the right things, but they have real, no real joy in their lives. Have no real peace. They have no real patience with people. There's no real kindness there. And the reason why is because they have no real relationship with the risen Christ. You hear what the angels say in verse 6? They say, he is not here. He has risen. That's what we celebrate. And that means that you can have a real relationship with him. But for many of us, our relationship with Jesus is just like he was still dead. For honest what it's like. In fact, this is another thought experiment. Think about a person who is dead, right? What is our relationship like with them? Well, at least in the South, we go to the graveside at times, right? We go there. Uh, we take flowers sometimes, especially on special occasions. We remember some good things that they did. We might even get a little bit emotional, but we don't have a real relationship with that person because they're dead. For many of us, that's exactly the way our relationship with Jesus is. We come to church and act like we're in a graveyard. We're going to be real quiet. 
We remember some good things Jesus did. We might bring some flowers on special occasions. We might even get a little emotional. But we don't have a real relationship with them on a daily basis. Let me just ask you, how is your relationship with Jesus different than your relationship with me with somebody who's still dead? Do you experience Jesus as a living person? For some of us, our Christian life can be so cognitive with very little or no daily experience of Jesus. And some of us want to keep it cognitive or intellectual. But it is because we, we're skeptical of or even scared of anything experiential. And listen, I understand why. I know there are churches out there that abuse the experiential. I'm aware of that. But you need to understand the Bible is full of experiential language. Think of your brother David, a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 34, verse 8, he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now think about that. Why didn't he just say, know that the Lord is good? Just know it in your head. Maybe write some catechism question and just know that he's good. No, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good because he wants you to experience the goodness of God. I think of the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards. He's writing on this verse, and he compares it to honey in a jar. He says, you can look at honey in a jar, and you can know it's honey because of its color, because of its viscosity, its thickness, because it might have a comb in it. He says, so you can look at that jar, and you can know it's honey. Or you can take the top off of it, put a spoon in, you can taste the sweetness and experience the honey for yourself. Listen, God in his word calls us to experience his goodness, to taste and see that he's good, to not only just believe the right things. I fear we often profess to believe the right things and then we seek experiences for many other things that are not of God, that we're tasting and seeing. We don't taste and see that the Lord is good, so we run to other things to have an experience. We run to popularity. We want to be liked by people to fill that void inside of us. For some of us, we don't care what people think. We just want them to respect us. You might not like me, but you're going to respect me, we might say. For some of us, we try to fill that void with sex and sexuality. For some of us, we try to experience relationships with certain people that we want to be close to. For some of us, we're tasting success or we just want comfort. And when we don't get the experience we're looking for, we will do many things to get it. We will change jobs. If that doesn't work, we'll change careers. We'll change churches. We'll change hobbies. We'll change houses. We'll change spouses. And if none of that works, we just get real cynical and start telling people, you just can't have that kind of experience. Get used to life in the world. Not pessimistic, just realistic. That's what we do, right? Because that experience eludes us. And it escapes us because we're looking for that experience in the wrong places. I love what the angels say to women in verse 5. Did you catch it? They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do we seek life in things that can't give life? Those things will never satisfy you at the deepest levels of your soul. You have a hunger that only Jesus can satisfy. 
You have a hole inside of you that only he can fill. But I have good news for you this morning, this afternoon. The message of Easter is this. Because Jesus has physically risen from the dead, you can have a real relationship with the living Christ with real intimacy and real joy and real transformation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray and ask him to make that real to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've accomplished for us. I pray for my friends here that you would help us to draw near to you and that you would make your presence real to us and that we would be forever changed, that we would look more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.